From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. There are many parts of our identities that are very important, but difficult to define. Gender identity, sex, gender expression, and sexual expression are not binary and differ for everyone. In the realm of transgender individuals, safety and ethical considerations are crucial to positive patient care. At Boston Children's Hospital and the Center for Gender Surgery, Dr. Oren Gnor is working with his team on a multidisciplinary approach to safe, dependable care for trans individuals. Dr. Oren Gnor is the co-director of the Center for Gender Surgery at Boston Children's Hospital and a clinical instructor at Harvard Medical School. Welcome, Dr. Gnor. It's great to have you with us. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here, and thank you for inviting me. Uh, I want to talk to you about your current research, but but first I want to get a little bit of information about your background. Um, you're a plastic surgeon. You focus on microsurgery and reconstructive surgery. Could you talk a little bit about your training and um, how it brought you to the type of work that you're doing now? Yes, sure. So as you mentioned before, I'm a plastic surgeon at Boston Children's Hospital. I did my training and residency and medical school in Israel, everything in Israel, but came here to the United States to do a fellowship at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Harvard Medical School for one year of fellowship in uh, breast reconstruction and uh, complex uh, aesthetic surgery. Then a year later, I joined Boston Children's Hospital uh, where I did another fellowship which is another training in subspecialty in pediatric plastic surgery and craniofacial surgery. And since then, I'm focusing on uh, complex reconstructions and soft tissue reconstructions. And you're part of a research team and a center at Boston Children's Hospital that focuses on transgender health. Yes. So Um, so could you describe the group that you're working with and um, sort of get into what that work entails? Yes, of course. So um, I was lucky to be part of a big team that was uh, established last year. I'm one of the co-directors of that center. It's called the Center for Gender Surgery. At Boston Children's Hospital, um, about 10 years ago, there was um, um, another program that was established that's called the GEMS program, which stands for Gender Management Services. And as a pretty direct continuation, last year we uh, decided uh, to build this multidisciplinary uh, team that will provide care for gender uh, dysphoric patients and for transgenders who seek for gender affirmation uh, surgeries. Our team is composed of uh, plastic surgeons, urologists, a social worker, We have uh, the um, support of the endocrinology team, psychology, psychiatry, the ethics committee, the legal team, because uh, there are many issues that sometimes need to be addressed, especially when you're talking about this kind of uh, um, patient care in a pediatric setting. You mentioned gender dysphoric. Yes. Could you give us a little bit of definition about what that actually means? 
Gender dysphoria is a general term to describe people who were born with some degree of dissociation between gender identity and their sex assigned at birth. It is more of a dynamic psychosocial process that whenever it affects someone, it is impossible to escape it. Transsexualism is another term that has been used over the years. It is more of a medical diagnosis to describe someone who is transgender and who wants to undergo a medical or surgical transition, but it is not a term that is used commonly outside of the medical setting anymore. Although gender dysphoria is not a mental disorder, it is associated with a higher risk of conditions like depression, anxiety, and suicidality, but research suggests it's more from dealing with stress and the stigma of society and not inherent to being a transgender. The majority of people, their sexual characteristics and how they perceive their sex, there is concordance between that. And, uh, but still, you know, it is amazing to know, but there is around 1.6% of the populations who, who are transgenders. And that's a lot, meaning here in the United States, there are about 1.4 million transgenders. And we're talking about uh, teenagers. There are also around 150,000 transgender youth between the ages of 13 to 17. So it's a big population. And mostly the way people today perceive it is that they define how they feel and not what their body look like. So that disconnect is where the dysphoria comes exactly. in. Exactly. It's a more like a confusion or feeling uncomfortable within your body. Yeah. So could you talk a little bit more about that? If somebody experiences those feelings, what other aspects of psychology are there to that? What is What are those, some of the issues that you deal with? So, you know, if you're looking at um, some data, and uh, there was a big study that was uh, done in two waves. It's called the National Transgender Discrimination Study. And that was performed, uh, started in 2013, and the second wave was in 2016. If you look at the data they uh, provided, you can see that historically and continuing through today, transgender individuals experience, experienced health disparities often related to the discrimination they face. So transgender individuals, they experience four times more likelihood to live in extreme poverty. They are twice more likely to be unemployed and four times more likely to be homeless. So if we're talking about teenagers, you see a lot of mental health problems regarding that. The majority of the patients that I see, and same for the uh, patients that are seen in the GEMS program, they describe they have um, depression, they have anxiety, they have social phobia, they don't like to go to school. Um, And what is interesting is that the the suicidal, suicidal rate is nearly 40%, and if in the general population is 1.6%, here it's, you know, 30 times more, which is overwhelming. And one way to help these patients is to help them feel better and more comfortable within their own body. And obviously, surgery is not the first step. They 
definitely need to be assessed first. They need to uh, have a, a therapist. Sometimes they have more, more than one therapist, one that just, just to address general things, like I mentioned before, the anxiety and depression. And sometimes they need a gender therapist as well. And after that, if they feel comfortable and they have the support of the parents, because obviously they are minors and they cannot uh, sign consents, they can start puberty blockers. And that is something that uh, endocrinologist most of the time is going to prescribe them. And if later they and the family believe this is the right path for them, they're going to have hormonal treatment, cross-hormonal treatment. So for a, for a male-to-female transgenders, it's going to be estrogen. And for a female-to-male transgenders, it's going to be testosterone. And then later, when they are a little bit older, and I can discuss that a little bit later, um, they come and sometimes they seek for gender affirmation surgeries. Uh, the majority of the patients that we see are uh, older than the age of 15. So we don't offer any of the surgeries to uh, younger kids because we don't believe this is the right thing to do. And even the surgeries that we offer to uh, minors, meaning between the ages of 15 and 18, is only chest surgery. But uh, for older patients above the age of 18, um, we offer also the genital surgery. You gave us a little bit of a description of the ethical issues that you deal with in terms of uh, age limits on the types of surgery that you do. What are some of the other ethical issues that you deal with in terms of research? Of course. So if you're looking at the ethical issues, um, and, and this is part of the reason that we have very close relationship with the ethical committee, uh, ethics committee at uh, Boston Children's Hospital, there are many, many issues that we needed to address. Uh, so first of all was what is the age of surgery that we are going to offer to our patients? Because as I mentioned before, this is not the first thing you want to uh, offer to patients. And you want to make sure that you are treating the right patients and you're not uh, missing any problems that are not addressed. So. That is one thing. Another thing is because you're dealing with minors, what you're going to be about, what you're going to be doing about consents. So what we decided to do, we decided to adopt the model of the GEMS program at Boston Children's Hospital. So they, to, uh, to start hormonal therapy for their patients, they decided after a long time to ask for two parents consent and also to ask for the patient's assent. So again, that gives them a little bit more, uh, you know, um, a level of uh, confidence that they are treating, they are doing the right thing and both parents are on board because it's not like that all the time. And also when we're discussing um, um, genital surgeries, you always need to keep in mind that uh, the genitalia is supposed to provide a, a way to... Uh, to be fertile and to have kids. And sometimes, you know, when we, you're dealing with uh, young adults, uh, they remember that, but you need to emphasize to them what are the things that they are going to give up and what are the things they need to consider before doing that. So if you're talking about uh, female to male uh, transgender uh, surgery, uh, if that, that name for that is called phalloplasty. These patients need to have hysterectomy and oophorectomy, meaning removal of the uterus and the ovaries before they have the surgeries. So then you need to discuss with them, do you want to do a fertility preservation or not? Same thing when you're discussing vaginoplasties. 
the name of the surgery is penile inversion vaginoplasties. And part of these procedures is orchiectomy, meaning removal of the testicles. And then you need to discuss that with the patient. So sometimes they come when they're younger and they want to do that before the age of 18 because they're going to go off to college next year and they're going to feel more comfortable going off in their new uh, sex and after having the surgery. But uh, that entails uh, dealing with that when they're younger. So that is another ethical issue that we needed to address and to discuss. And also, when you're discussing of having fertility preservation, that actually can um, sometimes enhance the, the dysphoria because they need to stop the hormonal therapy for about 90 days. And that can actually cause them some uh, physical and emotional uh, anxiety and some symptoms as well. So we definitely want to offer that to the right patients, but not put them under a lot of stress because the surgery itself uh, provides a lot of uh, stress. Another ethical issue that we need to uh, talk about is uh, we don't want to miss any patients with body dysmorphic disorder. Okay, so, talk about that, body dysmorphia versus gender dysmorphia. Yeah, so... Body dysmorphic disorder, this is another diagnosis. It's a, a mental diagnosis. It's in the DSM-5. These are patients that really seek for um, um, surgical treatment to change their body characteristics. And it can come in many varieties. These are patients that, you know, I'm talking from the plastic surgery world. Many times they look for to change the nose multiple times or even uh, uh, augment some parts of the body, including the lips. And they do seek to do that many times. And the problem with that, that they are never happy. And one of the things that we want to make sure that, again, as I said before, that we're treating the right patient is that we are treating patients with gender dysphoria and not with severe body dysphoria. And fortunately for that, we are using the WPATH criteria. WPATH uh, stands for the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. And uh, the World Professional Association for Transgender Health uh, put a guideline for uh, all surgical and medical providers. These are guidelines to protect the patients and protect the surgeons. And, and the physicians, and it actually gives you some kind of um, criteria before you are going to offer the, the patient the, the specific uh, medical treatment. So if we're talking about um, genital surgery, first of all, you want to make sure that the patient is older than the age of 18, being in the age of majority. Another thing is that all of his medical and mental uh, health problems are being addressed and are being controlled. And uh, what is important for us specifically when you're discussing surgery is that the patient provides letters that support that he has solid gender identity for at least 12 months. And because we don't know the patients uh, before that, we ask for one letter from his primary care physician or hormonal prescriber and, an and another two letters for mental health providers. So after we have that, we review them and many times we need to speak with the physicians and make sure that uh, they uh, stand behind what uh, we see in the letter. And only then we can discuss with the patient 
if they are ready to do that. So before I see patients in clinic, I always ask them to provide these letters. And only then we uh, move forward with uh, discussing the surgery. One thing that I uh, decided with myself at the beginning, all of our team is like that, that we want to make sure that we are treating the right patients. Surgery is one-way ticket. That's the way I like to call it. And we don't like to find ourselves in the position that we did something uh, that... Uh, we regret, the patient will regret, and potentially uh, cause him even more problems in the future. Is there any data on how many people go through surgery and feel regret? So it's very uncommon. And part of the reason that uh, you know we do our studies and our research in that field uh, is to evaluate what uh, is the percentage of uh, detransitioning. Uh, from the medical uh, field today and from the literature, it is very low. It's less than 0.1 to 1%. But still, we're looking for a more, uh, you know, uh, a better data and, uh, and studies to uh, assess that. Hi, Think Research listeners. We're taking this break to let you know that Harvard Catalyst offers online courses and topics including grant writing, mixed methods research, and omics. Right now, we are accepting applications for our Foundations of Clinical Research course, Factor. To apply and learn more about all the courses we offer, please visit catalyst.harvard.edu education. Before we started recording, we were speaking, and you mentioned that this is a new field um, that a lot of the research you're doing is very preliminary. Just as somebody who reads the news and observes the culture, it does seem like the transgender issue has become much more popular in the last few years. Um, could you talk a little bit about the history of the type of work in the center that you're working with and how long centers like that have been providing services? You mentioned GEMS has been around for about 10 years. Is that one of the earliest or have there been earlier? So the GEMS program was established about 10 years ago and that was the first uh, multidisciplinary uh, program uh, in the country. And this last year, our center, the Center for Gender Surgery, was established at Boston Children's Hospital to support the need. And as, um, as you mentioned, you know, this uh, population was very much marginalized and neglected throughout the years. And only in the past few years, they beca became more visible and, uh, came out of the closet. So unfortunately, when we're discussing research and publications in the field of gender dysphoria and, and gender affirmation care, this is another area where this population was marginalized and neglected. So not many studies were performed until five years ago, and not speaking even about long-term studies. I'm talking even about, you know, uh, case reports and uh, short-term studies and uh, surgery outcomes. So there are definitely a few major fields that we at BCH uh, and Center for Gender Surgery try to focus on and interested in studying. One area is barriers to care. Uh, unfortunately, many transgenders experience great difficulty accessing care due to many reasons. So until a few years ago, gender affirmation care was not covered by insurance. Fortunately, today, there are about 14 states in the country with explicit policies banning trans exclusions from their policies. And even within these states, there are changes and adaptations all the time. 
if last year many insurances didn't cover care for minors, today they understand this is something they are obligated to do. But if you look at the numbers, only in the past year, 25% of uh, has insurance problems related to being transgenders, where 25% of them uh, when seeking coverage for hormones and 55% when seeking coverage for transition-related surgeries were denied. Okay, so sorry. So, you, so that statistic you just um, quoted, so 25% of people seeking hormonal treatment and 55% of people seeking surgery were denied. Exactly. Even yeah. And what are the regulations or laws that require insurance to cover that type of procedure? So unfortunately, there's no federal law. This is something that is uh, getting decided in each state. Uh, here in Massachusetts, uh, all s medical and surgical uh, affirming care is covered by insurances, both by Medicaid and by private insurances. Uh, but still, some insurances, uh, they are, um, again, and there, um, there's no uh, criticism here. They are studying the field as well. It's a relatively new field. Uh, so they are deciding what kind of surgery is supposed to be uh, uh, covered and what not. This is something that uh, all insurances and us we are dealing with on a, on a daily basis. Um, but you know, only in the past year, if we're talking about another set of surgeries, there's something that is called the facial feminization surgery. Is having surgery of the face for trans women uh, to uh, become more feminine. And these surgeries are extremely important for transgender uh, females uh, just because uh, to uh, come through in society, to be able to hold a job, to not be stirred walking down the street, these surgeries are extremely important for them. So until a year ago, it was not covered by many insurances, but since 2017, it started to be covered. In many. Why in 2017? What happened? Uh, I think, you know, it's exactly what we talked about earlier, that, you know, the visibility is, uh, is better, that... Uh, the, the transgender community started to come out more. And, you know, if, if, and I'm always talking about that when I talk about it with people, you know, when I went to medical school, I graduated 10 years ago, I didn't even see one patient, one transgender patient, not throughout my uh, medical training and not, ev not even my, my medical school studies and not even through my plastic surgery training. And now you see that on a daily basis in all aspects of uh, healthcare as it's supposed to be, because if we're talking about 1.6% of the population, they're there um, and they were hiding and they were describing that they didn't get the right treatment. They described that they felt many times that they cannot get the right care, that they uh, were asked the wrong questions, that uh, they were harassed, that many times the providers uh, were judgmental and they did some um, things that they always, almost felt that were physically abused. This is a very strong term that they're using. Uh, but now we are trying to do it right. And one, one of the ways to do it right is to educate our team, to let them know it is okay to acknowledge that you need to ask questions. This is something that you need to feel comfortable with. And we try to educate them. I'm talking about people that don't directly work with patients, but speak with the families, like administrative uh, team, coordinators, clinical assistants, nurses, physician assistants, everybody. We are trying to uh, 
speak with them and educate them how to deal with transgenders because we try to provide a safe environment and safe atmosphere for these patients and that way they're going to feel more comfortable uh, with themselves too. You talked a little bit about the lack of research and I know that um, the Center for Gender Surgery is seeking to perform some of this research. I wanted to talk about the short and long-term research goals that you have. You mentioned the ethics and some of the legal issues. Are there any other short-term research goals that you have? So in general, I think, um, as I mentioned before, one of the short-term goals is to um, assess the barriers of care and to change them as fast as we can. One way to do that, as I mentioned before, is to help the patients to feel more comfortable with their own body. But another way to do that is to uh, have a better and safer environment for them. We are also, as a leading uh, um, you know, academic institution, we're trying to uh, go out and speak about that, to meet with primary care physicians, to uh, give talks, and to uh, provide as much as support as we can to this community. And um, I know that, uh, you know, here at Boston Children's Hospital, this is one of the main missions of the hospital. And uh, for that reason, we decided that we're going to do everything we can to help that. But unfortunately, you know, we are the first center in a pediatric setting, and we hope that that's going to change in the future and uh, will uh, develop more in other institutions like us. Another field of interest for us, and it's not exactly about uh, the short-term goals, but, you know, if you're talking about uh, um, medium to long-term goals is to... um, we are interested in researching the psychosocial well-being of transgenders. As I mentioned before, this population has experienced negligence and was marginalized for many years. And the treatment of transgenders was involved with prejudice, preconceptions, and prejudgments. Um, a great deal of, of, of so the majority of them experience severe mental health problems, including depression and anxiety and social phobia. And uh, we believe that this is something that with gender affirmation care, and it doesn't really matter if it is just a medical term, a medical care with the hormones or also the surgery, can address that and can help them. But we want to be able to assess that. and. For that, we established a longitudinal database infrastructure that we're doing now. With every patient that comes through clinic, we try to assess their psychosocial well-being before surgery. We ask them for how long they were treated with uh, hormonal therapy, what kind of uh, you know environment they live in, uh, if they have the support of the family, and then to try and assess that in a few uh, months or years after they had uh, more uh, sur- uh, more surgeries or more uh, treatments, and by that to uh, solidify our uh, thought that that will definitely uh, help them uh, feel better about them themselves and you know continue with their lives. We've talked a lot about the mental. Um, issues that people with gender dysphoria experience, depression, anxiety. Is it your experience that everyone who has gender dysphoria experiences depression and anxiety, or is it something that 
a portion of the population experiences. So no, absolutely not. I don't think all of them experience that, but um, you know, ma the majority of them have some uh, degree of mental health problems, and and I think you know the reason for that is pretty well known by now. So again, I'm going to go back to the National Transgender Discrimination Study that I was discussing before. So you know. Just a few more uh, numbers. So if you look there, you can tell that, you know, in the second wave in 2016, it was published that 60% of transgenders reported, reported history of physical assault. 64% reported history of sexual assault. 57% reported significant family rejection. So if you're talking only about all around these three, you know, uh, numbers that I just mentioned, you can understand why these patients are dealing with depression and anxiety and social phobia and social problems. So yes, and definitely when we're talking about, um, you know, teenagers who go through a lot of emotional and, you know, physical changes, regardless of being transgenders, Definitely, we see that more. Um, you know, it is interesting to remember, though, that we, the patients that we see, it's, it's a little bit, we, there's somewhat of selection bias here because the patients, because we are dealing with pediatric population or minor patients, unfortunately, the patients that we see are only the ones that the parents seek uh, care for and seek for some, you know, help from the, from the medical field. There are many patients that are not that lucky and, you know, their parents don't bring them over or they tell them and encourage them to, uh, to not express their feelings, to not express their desires. And only later in life, uh, that becomes uh, something that they uh, can express and they can seek care for. And I think with these patients, the ones that we don't see, we see even more uh, mental health issues. And for them, definitely the 40% suicide rate uh, is probably where uh, that data was taken from. Where do you see the center going and what would you like to see for the field in general? Today in the, in, in the country, in the United States, there are about between 10 and 20 surgeons that... Um, provide genital surgery for uh, female to male transgenders. I really hope that this will change in the future. Uh, I hope that, uh, you know, many more centers are going to feel comfortable with that, that more providers going to have training and going to be a, a comfortable providing, providing this care. And when we talk about this care, it's whole also about the hormonal therapy that not many uh, endocrinologists that feel comfortable doing that. So I, I feel that in the future, we're gonna see more. Uh, if we talk specifically about the center, I hope that we would be able to uh, provide all the comprehensive uh, treatment and all surgical solutions for transgenders. And again, I'm not saying that all of them are gonna be uh, provided to all uh, age groups, but definitely I hope that we'll be able to provide it to all patients if they need it in the right time and to provide the right care and definitely to um, include the research component in that because I think uh, that today everything's supposed to be evidence-based and I think that we'll be able to provide better care if we will establish uh, 
that infrastructure from the beginning. Thank you very much, Dr. Gnor. It's been great to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much, and I really appreciate you inviting me here today. Thank you. Next time on Think Research. Essentially, we have to make computer tomography more available. Right now, the penetration of computer tomography in large hospitals and big metropolitan areas like Boston is great. But as you go out in, let's say, rural New Hampshire, it is very sparse. One of the questions that my team is addressing is, can we get rid of some of the complexity in the machine, simplify it to the extent that it can be put into ambulances or in places where you normally would not have it? Dr. Raj Gupta of Massachusetts General Hospital explains how his imaging technology is making CT scans more accessible for people in need. Harvard Catalyst Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Subscribe to Think Research on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about our podcast or suggest topics for future episodes, visit our website, www.catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch. <laughs>